0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jason Burke. I thought a vagina was some kind of external hot dog bun shaped thing. That also got aroused. And then adults, I guess, just repeatedly walked into each other to have sex. <laughs>
1: that and more, but first I want to give a little shout out to two of our latest Patreon members, Amy DeJarme and Otto Ray Carlisle. We always give a big shout out to anyone who is donating $25 or more per month, but you can donate any amount you want, and there's always bonus content there, like for example this week, we're premiering another one of our anecdote compilations, short stories that you guys have sent us. Here's an excerpt from Terry Girvin and Mike O'Connell.
2: I woke up. Sprinting along, losing all of my friends, jumping a flaming skipping rope, kissing a random girl, and then... Hours of fucking blackout. Nothing. Hours.
0: Blackness.
1: Go find that and more at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is the Yellow Jackets behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode, Turning the Corner. Holy shit, what an astounding, astounding week we just lived through. On Tuesday, last Tuesday, Election Day, I went down to Pennsylvania to do door-to-door canvassing. And it was such a bipolar experience because it was so inspiring and heartwarming to talk to Biden supporters, which was what we were down there to do. But then it was so unnerving bumping into the Trump supporters or facing them coming at us in giant trucks and yelling and stuff like that. There was a lot of what felt like hostility coming from the other side and then the next few days were just I I got no sleep it was nerve wracking waiting and waiting and waiting for the votes to be counted and then finally on Saturday morning Biden reached the 270 electoral votes needed and New York City the entire city (laughs) just exploded with joy all day and all night. Uh, Hours and hours of just sheer joy everywhere you walked. Almost like you see in the old photos of, you know, when World War II ended. I've never seen New York City so happy. These past several years especially this year have been so heartbreaking and frustrating and frightening and discombobulating. I think for a lot of us, we head into 2021 with a ton of new questions about our relationships, about our careers, about our living situations, Our future plans, but at the very least, we can now breathe more easily because we fixed at least one gargantuan problem. And hopefully, we're only beginning to learn what we can accomplish when we come together to really activate change. Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear from the wonderful Miriam Zaring-Halam. She told a story at a Risk live stream a few weeks ago that really moved us. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was recorded in Los Angeles at one of our live shows last year. This is Jason Burke. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at EatPrayJason. Now, this was recorded at a live show, but the audience mics were a little wonky that night, so uh, sound might be a little odd, but I think you're getting used to sound being a little odd from some of our live stream recordings. Here now is Jason Burke with a story we call Church Retreat Confession.
0: I once went to a church retreat in Bristol, Connecticut in 1996. I didn't love church. It was boring. Made me wake up early. But you know, sexy people went to church. (laughs) When you're a teenager, sexy and cool people are kind of the only things that matter, you know? But for all intents and purposes, we were a church-going family. I was raised by a young single mom. She had me at 18, like a real American. So what we do here, we pop them out young, <laughs> ruin lives. <laughs> she was amazing, really amazing. She put herself through college and into the workforce, all while raising me. With a little help from my grandparents, we lived with them till I was about 15 or 16. And we had an interesting dichotomy with our family. My grandparents loved church, Whew, loved it. I think it's a prerequisite to become a grandparent. <laughs> to love God, I mean, multiple times a week to church, weekly prayer groups, daily rosary sessions, it was like, guys, come on, we get it, okay, you hate each other, just leave me and Judy out of this, I mean, we followed suit, we went, right, because we lived there, but my mom still did things her own way, still raised me on her terms, very much of the times, she let me watch Die Hard when I was nine, and taught me about sex when I was 10, (laughs) She didn't want me to learn it through the sexual education program at school. She wanted to teach it to me. So once I got that information, I, of course, immediately canvassed the neighborhood with it, let those kids know everything that I thought I knew. I got in a lot of trouble because it included a diagram that had a drawing of an erect penis and an erect vagina (laughs) because I thought a vagina was some kind of external hot dog bun shape thing. That also got aroused and then adults I guess just repeatedly walked into each other to have sex. <laughs> so of course by the time I was a teenager I had a real firm grasp on male and female intercourse. This church retreat that happened in 1996 Bristol Connecticut was the beginning of high school. I was in September and it was attended by some of the most popular kids in my class. Just the coolest dudes and the hottest chicks. It was more of a popularity contest than it was a day learning about God and his buddies. At least that's how I saw it. You know, I really wanted to shine. I wanted these dudes to think I was cool and at least one of these girls to like me enough to let me see her hot dog bun. (laughs) This church retreat took place in a nun's convent. There was about three to four nuns there, a couple priests, and 25 of us teenagers just jammed into this tiny living room. The purpose of the retreat was to do a bunch of team building exercises to become better Christian boys and girls, to help us navigate the troubled waters of high school, all the temptation. The first exercise they asked us to do was to write down anonymously on an index card, ideal first date. Now, with 20 some odd years of hindsight, I have to ask, why is this a question at a religious event? Do they want to make sure that abstinence is top of mind? To anonymously shame anyone that thinks otherwise? Or just to tip off a couple sneaky priests? (laughs) Watch out. They got tiny hands. They're quick. Those guys. Either way, I was stoked to hear this question. I was ready to go. I was like, let's explicitly let these strangers know how J.B. rolls on date one. I heard anonymous and I thought I was free and clear just to express my progressive views on dating and by progressive I mean extremely horny so I went in on this index card man I'm a great writer I licked the pen boom just almost filled up both sides nouns verbs adverbs tons of adjectives too many arguably and when we were done they asked us to throw the cards back in the middle Mix them up, grab someone else's card, because we're gonna read them aloud. Are you fucking kidding me? It's gonna be getting any better. I was fucking stoked. My plan was unfolding perfectly. Gosh. Perhaps there was some um, oversharing, Uh, um, a lapse in judgment had happened. But remember, I'm an only child, okay? I spent my whole life trying so hard to get people to like me, which is why I'm here right now before you. So I genuinely believed that some of these kids would like what I had to say, at least the guys. So the first teen has his card. He's about to begin reading. His name is Mike. I didn't know Mike previously. We were in the same class. We didn't go to the same middle school. We would eventually become friends and basketball teammates, but I didn't know him before this. Mike Ike would describe as like class clown vibes, you know, ugly, and that's why he was so funny. His card read, I'd like to just go for a long walk on the beach, hand in hand with my girlfriend as the sun sets. Maybe I'll give her a kiss goodbye when it's over. My first thought, "Eh, wrong answer. (laughs) What? That's not how you date a teenage girl. Are you kidding me? Obviously, a closeted homosexual boy wrote that. He's very confused. Did a priest slip that in there? Come on, next car, let's go. Speed things up here. The next kid was up, next young man. We'll call him Scott C. Now, Scott and I used to be best friends early on in life, K through fourth grade. We were very close. We went to the same middle school as well, but we weren't that close of friends. It kind of fell out, but, you know, Nothing bad, just weren't close. I would describe Scott as one of those uh, cool short guys, if you know what I mean. You know, there's definitely a couple in here that are very excited I said that. You know, uh, Very slick, a very slick, young, tiny man. <laughs> so he began reading his card. And his card said, I'd just like to go to the movies, maybe share a popcorn, share a soda, perhaps we hold hands. And then when the movie's over, one of our parents will pick us up. And it was at this point that I realized how screwed to the wall I was. (laughs) Screwed to the wall like the savior whose house I was in. Uh, I was freaking out, losing it. I sweated through a beautiful Ralph Lauren rugby shirt. And they were thick back then. They made them right in the 90s. I mean, it was just plastered to my skin, losing it. And then they eventually got to my card, And it went a little something like, we get to watch a movie at her place, in the basement, in the basement, specified. Once the movie begins, we'll start kissing. And then we'll begin French kissing. And if things are going well, my hand will slide up her shirt. And if things are going real well, if I get real lucky, my hand will go down her pants. And then all hell broke loose. (laughs) The nuns and priests lost complete control of this situation. They just receded into the curling wallpaper, was like, you guys sort this out, I don't know what's happening. The girls were hissing, that's disgusting! Who would say that? Ew! The guys were laughing. Then my old buddy, my old pal, that little Connecticut prick, Scott C. popped up and just Lord of the Flies the whole situation and goes, all right, everybody, throw your cards down. Find your own card. We're going to figure out who wrote that. (laughs) What? No, we can't do that to me, okay? Wow. um, I feel like I'm staring at Judas right now. An allegory is unfolding of sorts, and I do not like it. So I did the only thing I could do at the time to save a little face. I grabbed someone else's cart. (laughs) We're sitting in a circle right now, okay? We're sitting in a circle, about to start reading. All the clergy members are now standing up behind us like some kind of Roman Catholic cockfight. And they start reading, and they get to me. And I'm not four words into this card before its owner shoots up and goes, that's mine, I got the perverts right here. (laughs) Ouch. One last dig. Um, People freaking out again. Girls hissing, ew, he's so gross, he's disgusting. One of them goes, I knew it was him. What? (laughs) Excuse me, you knew it was me? Anonymously, you knew it was me? I hate to break it to you, sweetheart, but I think we're soulmates, okay? We're obviously into the same kinky shit. You should be my hot dog bun. Man, that was one of the most isolating moments of my entire life. I've never been or felt more alone than I did right there. Everyone just pushed their chairs as far away from me as possible. The nuns wouldn't even make eye contact with me. My first cousin, Brent, was in this class, and he just laughed at me. Remember, this is the morning, the beginning of an entire day. Nobody would work with me the rest of the day. Nobody would speak to me. I was alone for the next five and a half hours. And to top it all off, my mom was 45 minutes late to pick me up. (laughs) So I just sat on the steps of this shame dungeon. and let these kids pass one more round of judgment upon me. I was immediately ostracized in high school. It was the worst beginning of high school I could have ever imagined. I was branded with a Scarlet P for pervert. Um, During gym class, I wasn't included in the gym class clique that walked around, so I just walked like 20 paces behind them, some kind of concubine. Wasn't invited to any of the freshman parties, just stayed home, played Nintendo with my mom. It was really rough. I remember trying to call my um, new friend, Todd, who had eventually become my best friend, just to try to explain what was going on, hung up on me. Wouldn't even hear me out. And things didn't really warm up. They didn't really warm up to me until basketball season, because I was good at basketball. So small town people love that. Allowed me back into the inner sanctum of Bristol Eastern High School. I felt the ripple effects, the repercussions of that for quite some time. I did not satisfy barely any teenage sexual desires. I was a virgin all through high school, for other reasons, but this had a lot to do with it. Um, And I, I, I mean, lost complete faith in the church. It was, it wasn't a safe place anymore, you know? I didn't like it that much to begin with, but it always felt like you could be honest in church, right? That's what you're presented. You can say whatever you want, you will be forgiven, everything is fine. But why did these clergy members allow this shit to happen? I was a child, okay? Maybe I borrowed some choice language from Todd's dad's pornography collection. <laughs> but, I mean, what the fuck, guys? You're adults, you just stood there and watched this happen. Completely unacceptable. It was heartbreaking. It was very hard for me to deal with. I do think, though, that I'm better off because of it. You know, it gave me thicker skin. It taught me how to deal with rejection and cruelty and Just, you learn when to be honest and when not to be honest, or just keep your mouth shut. Um, So I am am better off because of it. And I do think that if you are on a first date, and both parties are in agreement, it is perfectly fine to put your hand down someone's pants, okay? But maybe, do not proclaim your excitement to a room full of nuns. That's all I got to say about that. Thank you very much, guys. I'm Jason Burke.
3: grown adult lady, but I am not ashamed to admit that I call my mother every day. And I like to think of my mom as this sort of like on-demand, personal, and very affordable talk therapist, because every day when I am feeling a little bit anxious or a little bit weighed down by things happening in the world, I just pick up my phone and everything just pours out of my mouth and into my mom's patient, loving, and yeah, sometimes only half-listening ears. and. She'll tell me, Maryamem, Azizam," which is Persian for my Maryam, my darling. Everything's gonna be okay. And just like that, I feel this weight lifted off of my shoulders and like I can continue going on about my day uninterrupted. But one day on one of our calls, uh, she tells me that in a couple of months, she's going to be admitted into Columbia Presbyterian Hospital to get a brain aneurysm clipped. And immediately, my heart just sinks. Because like, this is brain surgery. It's serious stuff. And my mom's like, no, 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 no ma'am, don't worry. It's totally routine procedure, very low chance that anything's going to go wrong. It's all going to be fine. And so I'm like feeling okay for a second, and then I'm like, wait a second. That means that my mom's gonna be spending like roughly three days, 72 hours, recovering from brain surgery. And that's 72 hours that I can't talk to her. 72 hours that I have to like live with the anxiety of my life without any kind of like vent to let it all come out. She's strictly forbidden me from coming up from DC to be with her in New York uh, for this procedure because she's like, Marianne, like, you're just so dramatic. I know you're going to drive me crazy. You're going to make me feel like I'm going to die. And to be perfectly fair, uh, she's right. I am not somebody who is known for possessing a lot of chill, as they say. And so I respect her wishes, and I stay in DC. And the day of her surgery, the day she's admitted, I initiate constant text communication with my dad and my brother. I decide, like, I don't want to stress them out too much, so I set a timer to go off every hour to let me know that it's okay to text, because I feel like once an hour is, like, fine. Like, that's totally normal. At hour four, I get a text from my dad. And he sends a picture of my mom and says, she just got out of surgery, doing great, recovering just fine with like a whole bunch of celebratory emojis because he's a dad. And I guess dads like emojis. I don't know. I look at this picture, though, and I, I zoom in on her face. And she doesn't really look fine to me. She has bandages all wrapped around her head. And what I can see of her face looks kind of puffy. And she looks more like. A mummy than she does my mom and i get this kind of like nauseous feeling in the pit of my stomach that i just try to like fight away so i keep on texting like hour five dad how's she doing hour six like she making any noise hour seven when are you going to go back to the hospital to check in on her And at hour eight, I get off the DC metro to walk back home, and I instinctively reach for my phone to call my mom and tell her what a stressful day I've been having. And then I realize, like, I can't call my mom because the reason that my day is so stressful is because she's in the hospital and we can't talk. And so I resort to passing the time by dictating messages to Siri uh, of things that I want to say to my mom when we can talk again. So at hour 30, I say, hey, Siri, uh, make a note. Coworker making loud, wet chewing sounds again. Like, why? Hour 40, hey, Siri, make a note. Tesla, my cat, just attacked me in the middle of the night and I can't go back to sleep. Hour 52. Hey Siri, make a note. DC Metro is delayed again. Checked is DC Metro on fire.com and it is not in fact on fire. And finally, at hour 60, I get a text from my dad and he says that my mom is about to be discharged and that they'll be back home in a few hours and I can talk to her again soon. And so I'm just like feeling a little bit like, okay, like we're getting near that 72 hour mark. Like everything's gonna be okay. And at hour 64, I decide like, fuck it. I don't want to wait anymore. I call my dad and I'm like, put her on the phone. I want to talk to mom. And he's like, no, Mariam, she's still recovering. She's not feeling well. And I'm like, no, enough is enough. I just want to talk to her. I just want to hear her voice. And so he puts the phone up to her face and I just hear, this moaning sound, she says, or at least I think she says, I can't talk. It hurts, and I immediately regret asking my dad to let me talk to her. And so I decide, you know what? Like I'm just gonna let. I'm gonna let her call me. This will be fine. And so 64 hours become 72, which become 96. And I still haven't heard from my mom. And I'm starting to get really nervous. Like, why isn't she calling me? What's, what's going on? And then finally, at hour 103, I get a text. And I'm sitting on my couch, and I'm watching TV in my pajamas. It's a Saturday morning. And I'm just trying to like distract myself to keep myself from thinking about what's going on with my mom. And I get this text, and I look down, and I see it's from my mom. And it says, watching Gossip Girl, so funny, XOXO. And I am like, I mean, like, me and my mom, we share a love of garbage television. It's something that we've bonded over. But I'm like, this is the first thing that you say to me after we haven't talked for a record 103 hours? And I'm just like, oh mom, like, what the fuck? And then I get a call and I look down and it's from my mom and I'm just like bracing myself to hear the sound of her voice again, wiping back a few happy tears. And I, I pick it up and she says, ma'am, I just, I don't know about this Serena Vander Woodson. She's very irresponsible, very, very frivolous, not like her friend Queen Bee. I just think she's so much classier. She's so well dressed. Maybe you should dress like her. And I'm like, <laughs> at once, like, I'm like relieved to hear the sound of her voice but i'm also like mom what the fuck do they have you on cuz her voice is kind of slurred and she just giggles and says the good stuff got to go and hangs up and so i'm just like okay like here we here we are back in the swing of things like this is the new normal but before i can like think too much about it or like celebrate this milestone i got another call And I answer it. It's from my mom. And she says, Mariam, you know, I think I'm going to go to bed at 8 p.m. Does that sound good to you? And then maybe you go to, maybe you should go to bed at 8 p.m. And definitely don't call me after 8 p.m. Is that okay? And I'm just like, uh, and she says, "Okay, good, good, and hangs up. And to be perfectly clear, to be crystal clear, me and my mom are very close. We've never coordinated bedtimes before. That's just not a thing that we do. And before I can think too much about it, I get another call. And it's from my mom again. And I pick it up and she says, you know, actually, maybe 7:30. Does 7:30 sound good to you? Okay, good. And she just hangs up. And we keep going like this, like every five or ten minutes, she gives me a call or sends me a text message. At one point, she tells me that she has to go to a funeral tomorrow, and then when she's at the funeral, she tells me about how boring it is and how much she wished that we could just be together, which, like, kind of rude, but, you know, hey, we're back in the swing of things. Uh, It's me and my mom. Like, I call her every day, tell her everything about what's going on, and she just listens and loves me from afar. And a month after her surgery, I go back up to New York for my birthday to celebrate with my family. And they take me out to this super swanky brunch spot. And we all just like pile into the booth. And after we order, uh, my mom turns to me and she says, "Marianna, I have something to tell you. And immediately, I'm just like, oh, no. And she says, do you remember when I kept calling you after my surgery? And I'm like, yeah, it's hard to forget. Then she goes on to tell me that after she was discharged from the hospital, she didn't wake up. Uh, At hour 72, when I was waiting to get a call from her, my dad found her slipping in and out of consciousness. She had completely forgotten how to speak English. All she could say was, pishi, pishi, which is Persian for kitty, kitty because she'd become somehow fixated on our cat. I don't really know why. And my dad just, you know, he calls 911. She gets readmitted back to the hospital, and they run a whole bunch of tests, and they can't figure out what's going on with her. And so then they give her an emergency dose of steroids, 16 milligrams of dexamethasone. And then she says, and then, Mariam, I went psycho. And she just throws her head back and starts cackling in this way that is so contagious that I can't help but laugh myself. And she tells me how at hour 82, uh, she starts telling all of the nurses, all of the doctors, don't tell Mariam I'm in the hospital. I don't want her to worry. And all of the nurses are like, who's Mariam? Uh, and then at hour 94, they give her her phone back and she starts texting every single one of her contacts, including an ex boss that she had just told off the week before a uh, month before, um, saying, don't tell Mariam I'm in the hospital. And they're like, what the fuck? You're in the hospital. Is everything OK? Do you need anything? Also, who's Mariam? And then at hour 106, the nurses confiscate her phone because she won't stop harassing people. And so she decides that she is going to get back to her phone by orchestrating a hospital break where she systematically undoes all of her IVs, which she knows how to do because she's unfortunately a doctor, and almost makes it out before she trips an alarm and is then like put back in the bed forcibly by the nurses. And then at hour 120, she starts texting me about how she's at this really boring funeral that she totally made up because even though she's fully medically, clinically psychotic, she's extremely (laughs) consistent to the point where she just is like, I guess I'll just like randomly kill off this acquaintance and then pretend like his funeral is super boring because my daughter just won't believe that I'm at a perfectly nice and decent funeral. And I'm laughing this whole time she's telling me this. I laugh all the way back down to DC, thinking about how my mom just like straight up lost her mind. And then it hits me. My mom straight up lost her mind, and I had no idea. In the middle of a psychotic break, her first thought was on me, and my happiness, and my comfort. And then I start thinking about my dad, imagining him at hour 72, finding my mom not waking up. I imagine him calling 911, trying his best not to panic. And I think about how much I wish I could have been with him. I think about how much I wish I could have been sitting next to my mom holding her hand as they gave her that dexamethasone. I think about how much I wish that I could have been the first person she saw when she woke up in the middle of a psychotic break at hour 82. I think about how much I wish I could have been there at hour 106 to just hold her down and restrain her. And I think about how much I wish I could have been with her through all those hours and in all the hours to come, whispering "Maman, Iman, Aziz Iman, my mom on, my darling, everything's gonna be okay. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Yay, beautiful. This is Risk. This is the Mavericks behind me now, and we just heard from Miriam Zaring-Halam, who you can find on Twitter and Instagram at WebMZ underscore. Before that, a little excerpt from the song Freak Like Me by Adina Howard our final story on this week's episode comes to us from james bussam who shared this at one of our recent risk live streams be sure to check out james's youtube the last name is spelled b-u-s-a-m he has a show on youtube called tell me everything and i was a recent guest there anyway here is james bussam at the risk live stream with a story we call there but for the grace
2: So I have performed all over the country. I have performed in big theaters, in small theaters, on the coast of Malibu, in church basements, and even in a couple of private apartments. I've forgotten lines, I have skipped whole pages of dialogue, I've even fallen off a platform during a packed audience where there were agents in the packed audience specifically that are see me. But none of that. None of that will ever compare to the stress and anxiety of driving a four-tier, pristinely white wedding cake with those little paper-thin sugar-paste bows and flowers, 70 miles an hour on the I-75 Detroit Freeway, praying to God you don't hit a speed bump or you have to slam on your brakes or God forbid you get into an accident. So I used to work for a bakery, and I'm a actor, a singer, a writer, a cabaret artist. And working at the bakery, and I also had a side business making cupcakes and cakes and everything. And it was a good way as a performer to have a flexible income and then have my evenings open for rehearsals and performing. And one morning, um, my wife and I, she's also a performer, and uh, we had a very, very busy day. And it seemed like life was just beating us up. Uh, we were sitting at the table, sitting down with our bills, and just the reality of trying to make everything work, combined with the fact that our lease for our apartment was uh, ending and we were trying to find an affordable apartment. Uh, we both had shows that day, which was really exciting, but my wife had an amazing opportunity with uh, the Misty Copeland at the uh, Detroit Opera House, and she was doing Romeo and Juliet the ballet with her. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Misty Copeland is a phenomenal, She's like the Michael Jordan of ballet. She's a an amazing African-American uh, ballerina, and she's beautiful and, and insane. And I also had a cabaret, and um, I was really excited for this cabaret. We actually did uh, this cabaret where we took all these Disney songs, all these like Disney love songs, and we turned them into this uh, meet and greet where singles were going to the bar and trying to hook up. And so we kind of turned everything on its head and it was really fun. But All the stress of those two shows, combined with all the realities of life and trying to be artists and trying to make all the ends meet, were just, it was all piling up. And I had a a wedding cake order that day as well. And because I can't say no, I also told the family that I would pick up a cake stand. And I was also trying to get uh, donuts and coffee for my cast. So it was just, a ton of things that I was doing and it was overwhelming. So, you know, the day went and I finished the show and I'm driving home and I feel like a badass. I feel like I had accomplished everything. I. I delivered the cake in one piece. I even got a $20 tip because uh, they were so happy with it. The show was fantastic. We do this great number where I uh, sing the song, I'll Make a Man Out of You from Milan. And um, I was doing this bit where I'm teaching my friend how to take a shot um, and how to do a lot of shots in a row. So we were doing these drunken acrobatics over the bar and all dancing and laughing. And it was, it was just so great because I felt like there's very few times as a performer where you enter that sacred space where you're performing on stage, the audience is in the sitting in the chairs, and you're together. You're laughing together, you're sharing that space together. You know, they were laughing, we were all having fun, and their laughter was making us perform better and our performance was making them feel better, and it just felt so good. And I did end up having time to stop and get coffee and uh, treats for the cast too, so I just felt like I had accomplished everything. Feeling really good, you know, and I'm driving home, I'm listening to jazz, and I see down the expressway what looks to be like a broken piece of median. And I'm driving and driving and I get closer and I realize it's not a piece of like the divider for the expressway, it's actually an SUV. And the closer I get, I realize it's an SUV on its side. There was some sort of accident, but no one is around. There's no other cars on the expressway. And before I knew it, my hands just kind of took the steering wheel and I pulled over. I get out of the car and I step my feet on the ground and I'm instantly in an episode of the Twilight Zone. There are no noises, there are no one around. I feel like time has completely stopped. And I start walking towards the car and I remember grabbing my cell phone, thinking I should call 911 and going to dial the numbers, but then simultaneously realizing I probably should get to this car first. And I think I put my phone back in my pocket and I'm getting closer to this car not knowing what I'm gonna find and I can hear the crunch of glass under my feet. And then I am overwhelmed by this smell of gasoline that's permeating my skin. And as I walk closer and closer, I suddenly hear screaming. But the screaming sounds like when you're a kid and you're playing in the pool with your friend and you're underwater and you're trying to talk to each other or scream really loud so you can hear each other. That's what it sounded like. And I was getting closer and closer to the car And I'm hearing the screaming noise. I'm hearing the crunching. I'm smelling the gasoline. And all of a sudden I hear a and I don't know if my heart is about to burst out of my chest, but I keep going towards this car and I get to the car and it's on its side. I'm six foot two. It's right at my eye level. And as I'm trying to figure out what to do next, I suddenly see a little six-year-old hand beating against the window. And it's this little tiny fist and I immediately start trying to claw out the window and try to get the door open, but it's too high. And so I'm trying to see if I can get into the window and I can't. And so I break off the piece of plastic that covers the seal of the window and I grab my fingers into the broken plastic and I jam the window down and then I put it all the way down and inside I see little six-year-old girl crying her eyes out reaching her arms as like I'm her savior and and I'm trying to help her and she's wrapped up in her seatbelts and she's got a puffy coat on and I can't tell what is the puffy coat or what's the seatbelt and I get her unwriggled and I lift her up out of this car and I set her down next to me and I give her my coat and I tuck her behind me because I'm, I'm scared that she's going to get into the road and I don't know if there's any other cars coming. And I go back into the car and as I'm reaching back into the car to see who else is in there, I have a hand on my shoulder and then I see another hand and I hear voices and I'm suddenly joined by all of these people, I have help. And we go back into the car and we see her sweet grandma just sitting there patiently waiting for us to help her out and we get her out and we go into the front passenger seat and the mom is there and she's crying and she's talking in another language that I don't understand, but we help her out pretty easily and then we go to the dad, but he's trapped under the steering wheel and we're all yelling things at once and it's all confusing and we're trying to tell him, move your leg here, or move your arm here, we, we can help you, we're gonna get you out, but you have to like move this way and move that way and we're able to get him out and I, Look around, and there are four live humans standing outside of this car without any injuries. The dad has one little scratch on him from the broken glass. that's it. none of them none of them are hurt and I just remember thinking, okay, they're okay and as my brain and my body and my blood and my soul start to come back together, I look up and not 20 feet in front of me is my wife. I'm so confused because I I think she's a mirage. And I, I look at her and she's shrugging her shoulders and she has a limp smile like, Yeah, I don't know what just happened either. And I walked to her and she's standing outside her car. And I, I don't even remember asking her. But somehow I got the information that she had been driving behind me the whole time. And thought it was my car, but wasn't sure. And as soon as I pulled over, she knew it was my car. And I remember walking and inching and... Time stopping, and she describes me leaping out of the car towards this car accident, getting to the car in a matter of seconds, and it was her that called 911, and it was her who described me pulling people out of this car and all of this crowd helping. And we just stand there, and I'm so I I'm just at a loss of words. We stand there for a second, not knowing what to do, and we drive home. And of course, we go shopping because <laughs> that's what you do when you don't know what to do. We're in the store with the fluorescent lights and the music playing and I'm sliding one shirt on a hanger to the next and I'm over it. I don't want to be there anymore. I don't want to be at the store anymore. I want to I be home sitting there processing this. I, I want to be back at the accident because When I was there, I have never felt more sure that I had purpose. That car accident needed me. I needed to be the one on the road at that time before there were any other cars on the road. I needed to be the one driving because I am the person in life that sees the things that don't make sense and walks towards them. I'm the person that sees the things and needs to go help. I'm the person that does that. And I never felt more purpose than when I was doing that in that sacred space where just like when I was performing in the theater, you share that memory, you share that moment with the audience. It's enough to save someone's life if it's powerful enough. And I was in that moment with the car accident and I had never been more sure of my purpose before. I needed to go into that fire and I will always go into that fire. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
2: travel today with anyone
1: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Patty Griffin behind me now, and we just heard from James Bussam, who you can find on Instagram at JJ Folks, the next Risk live stream is on December 4th. We're doing them a little bit more rarely now, so you gotta make a point to be there. Mark your calendar December 4th at 10 p.m. Eastern, and tickets are at risk-show.com tour few years back in 2017, Elliot Ridley told an unforgettable story on Risk called Shaking. It was on the episode called Full Disclosure. It was about a traumatic sexual abuse sort of situation that Elliot transcended over time. And now he's made a movie about trauma or he's making a movie about drama and looking for funding for it. So if you go to Indiegogo.com and look up Manifesting Madeline. Elliot's raising money there, and it is a really worthy cause. I highly recommend you get on over there and check it out. And be sure to check out thestorystudio.org for a whole variety of different kinds of workshops we offer on storytelling. We've got a two-day one coming up with Wes Hazard, another one specifically for storytelling for business with Cindy Freeman, and then we do these webinars that are only 90 minutes long, like one coming up called How to Tell Stories in Which You were the villain with Brad Lawrence, not to mention our corporate workshops that we do for staffs of businesses. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Don't forget to check the show notes for this episode where you can find all the links for things like hiring me or getting texts from me about behind the scenes news here at risk. And of course, on social media, we are at risk show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I am at the Kevin Allison on Twitter and Instagram. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.